today I wanted I wanted to pin down what my understanding of the meaning of the death of Christ is and um, it does not it's not that it does not accord with or fit into Christus Victor or at least a reworked Christus Victor but I would also say that what I'm doing is is slightly different that is I think that uh, in several instances that it's more specific and that we can uh, we can actually detail uh, what's happening in the Bible in regard to the death of Christ now probably step one is you know we go through uh, and just ask to to whom was the death of Christ directed or to what or to uh, or who required it you know m- might be the question and then if you go through all the theories of atonement the original what we you know Christus Victor or the original idea is that it was directed to Satan, and that's that was probably a bit crude. Uh, it served its purpose in the you know uh, certainly there is the idea that Christ's death defeats Satan, but I I think we need to to say how in a more New Testament fashion than people like Origen or some of the early church that they pictured you know Christ as the bait and you know, the hook and Satan. And so it was kind of crude in that Satan was given too much power and God was pictured as deceptive. So that is the negative, or that's the downside to Christus Victor? That would be, that the way I would put it, that we need to revise the early churches, or at least some of the early churches' picture of Christus Victor. Now, I, I happen to agree with... Irenaeus and what Irenaeus is doing and uh, I think that what my own understanding accords with that so and Irenaeus is one of the earliest theologians but uh, that, that writes in that mode but so yeah when you say Christus Victor some people get this idea uh, like in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe you know whatever that was that that if the witch or Satan or is given too much power, um, so I think and, and the revision of that in you know modern thinking, uh, Denny Weaver calls it narrative Christus Victor. So people tend to revise it slightly to get around it. Then came Anselm. We we've talked about the problem with the satisfaction. You know, that, and I, I would connect Anselm satisfaction and penal substitution. They're certainly not the same thing, but I think the one leads to the other. And then the moral influence theory. But, but all of these theories uh, have an image of God in which God saves through uh, a divinely willed violence against Jesus. And I think that's. Uh, I don't think God killed Jesus. I don't think that's where we're to place the focus. Uh, The divine economy, you know, in divine satisfaction has a need for a death penalty to balance out sin, and so Christ dies. But that's also true even in the moral influence theory, that Christ's death is enacted by God. Uh... What I would say is that my work uh, has focused on Romans chapter 6 to 8, the book of Romans, but not just that. It's focused on, you know, Romans takes you to every place. It takes you to Genesis. Uh, it's not a departure from a reworked Christus Victor in that I, my understanding of the death of Christ is that it addresses the problem of sin and death and evil. Um so uh, that it's in, within a general understanding of Christus Victor. But I, like I said, I think we can specify the manner in which humankind is oriented to violence and death. Uh, individually and corporately, that I think we can specify. And here I, I would point to something 
on the order of Rene Girard, but I'm, I think that what I'm doing is, uh, again, that Rene Girard fits, but I think that we can even specify it in a way that perhaps Girard is not. Have we done Girard? Maybe that's maybe that's the a thing I'll need to do. Last night, Frank and I did a podcast. We did Rene Girard, but I, I can do it here. We can just listen to that. Oh. I think it was pretty good. <laughs> um, the idea is that I, I think that the New Testament says the death of Christ is directed to sin, and sin is a lie. Sin is a deception. Mm-hmm. And the lie of sin describes the way in which Satan, or if uh, if you don't want to, you know, if uh, specify a personalized state, the way in which evil exercises power in society and over the individual. That is, I think we can name this lie. We can describe the lie. Uh, the social aspect of evil is very much a biblical part, you know, a part of a biblical understanding. What's happening with Anselm, unfortunately, in a Constantinian understanding. Even by the time you get to the early councils, like the Council of Nicaea, they give us the formula that, you know, uh, that homo usia, that, that Christ is both God and man. That's fine, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, other than what it doesn't say. It's giving us this broad theory of who Christ is, but it doesn't reference the life of Christ, the person and the work of Christ, and specifically Christ's defeat of sin, evil, and violence. That is, by the time you get to Anselm, and of course it's happening in a Constantinian Christian long before Anselm, that they're going to neutralize who Christ is in regard to violence. Because in the lifetime of Anselm, Anselm's going to go witness the First Crusade and sign off on it and say, yeah, this is a good thing. Uh, and and you have the, you know, prior to this, you know, first 200 years, the church is pacifist. It's, and then you have a kind of accommodation of degrees of violence. But even then, you know, priests or those who were directly connected with a church were not to do violence. And even soldiers then were to seek penance for having done violence. Everybody recognized this is a bad thing. But by the time you get to Anselm, and it's in his lifetime, that the Pope is going to wage a a holy war against Muslims, and they're going to call upon certain orders of priests to take up the sword. Now Anselm, in fact, who was a, an abbot and you know, or, or the, and actually archbishop, he did not let any of his own, any of the people, his monks, go on the crusade. But he let he he let other people. Well, all I'm saying about what the early church councils are doing, you can't necessarily fault them in what they're saying except that it is a, an entire system that accommodates a Constantinian fusion of state and church. And if you're saying that sin, you're equating sin with violence, well, wait a minute, we just lost the whole purpose you know, of Christianity and the purpose of the death of Christ, as I would read it. So it's not, you know, like I would go back to the early councils and say, oh, well, no, they were wrong here or here. But what you have is this gradual evolution and accommodation to a a church that would be co-opted by the state. Um, Certainly, you know, and, and so you lose two things there. You lose the idea, as in early... I think in the New Testament, that the kingdom of God is opposed to the kingdom of man. But also, the thing that is not worked out in a typical Christus Victor, even in the modern period, I think we can describe the individual uh, person. Uh, that there is a particular working of sin, that sin, I would say, constitutes a form of subjectivity. 
Does that sound too strong? That may sound too strong until you think about conversion in the New Testament. It's being born again. It's being, it's a re, you know, the language that is being used, joining a new family, taking a new name. That imagery is that we are reconstituted as human subjects in Christ. Well, if that's the case, then we should be able to describe the subject that is outside of Christ. I believe we can specify the nature of the sinful, deceived subject and the manner in which Christ addresses the subject. Now, in doing this, I don't want to slip into another failure of Anselmian thought. And that is that Anselm tended you know, to focus on the individual to the exclusion of the society, right? Because the society was okay with it. It's Christian, you know, it's Christendom in their understanding. Um, so that salvation became a purely individualistic thing instead of the idea of a two powers or two kingdoms opposed to one. So I'm not, I'm not I don't want to in any way lose that, but nor do I want to in some way so focus on the corporate and the societal that we miss the individual. So the implication of what I think Paul is doing in Romans 6 and 8 and the implication of the biblical context in which that's couched is that Christ did not die primarily to meet a requirement of the law, but Christ died to displace a deception. Christ died to defeat a law, a lie. And the lie was, it certainly involved the law, but it is not regulated by the law. It is a misorientation, a perversion of the law. So the law is involved, but not like in Anselm, where the law, you know, he's going to describe the whole thing in terms of a regulated economy, that everything is regulated by God. And what he means by regulated is law. Now, what he actually means is Roman law, but in a sense, it doesn't matter what law he means, because all he's saying is that the death of Christ is not to free us from the law, but it is to meet the, the, the requirements of the law, and the law is left up and running. I think that is a profound misunderstanding of the New Testament and of the, the role of the, the law. What has happened, and Derek Nelson has written a whole book on this, that harmartiology uh, and soteriology, the doctrine of sin, doctrine of salvation, They've tended to either focus on the individual to the exclusion of the social, as with Anselm, as with the moral influence theory, uh, as, you know, in a sense, modern evangelicalism. That's all you really get that I can see, is that people, uh, this isolated individual, and pietism is, you know, focused there, that we're all about, a kind of interior life. I don't mean to say that our interiority is not important, but the exclusive focus on that then has tended to leave out then corporate systemic evil, the way in which the principalities and powers, you know, the prince of the world, this world, works through corporate structures, through... uh, cultures, nation-states, politics. Uh, I mean, in some ways, it's just so obvious what should be evil is, you know, even in Anselm's day, they're going out and killing people in the name of Jesus. Uh, As Christians, we say, no, we shouldn't do that. And Anselm even signs off, you know, part of the army that they raise on the Crusades is Muslim to go fight other Muslims. And they say that even these Muslims shouldn't convert. They don't want them. <laughs> it's ironic here. Uh, the, uh, the, the corporate evil should be obvious to us. So we want to keep both of those things in, in view. And so sin is a lie, I think, does this. 
it accounts for the role of the individual in the way that we are individually deceived, but it also count, accounts for the corporate sense in which that lie is foisted upon us in the, the, the structures of, of family and society. Uh, and part of what I'm saying here is that we can explain this thing, that we can explain... That, that sin is systemic and it exists in society, it exists in the individual. And then when we think of the atonement, uh, we can think of it as addressing this problem. Once we identify what the problem is, then we can see how Christ's death addresses this orientation to death that is part of the deception of society and part of, the, and part of our own in, uh, interior experience. Now, part of the interesting thing about Anselm, he does this intricate, and it's there in Augustine, too. They both do a kind of deep psychology. I think it's just a mistaken psychology. They're not really understanding the way that a human being functions. So, what is salvation? Why did Christ die? To transform the subject. But how do you transform a subject? Do you transform, do you get new birth apart from a new kingdom? No, that the two are tied together. Once we understand the corporate nature of the lie, then we understand the corporate nature of salvation. So because of the social nature of the subject, neither individual or social emphasis you know, should, should be prioritized. Part of what it means to overcome sin is to dispel the mystery of sin uh, historically that sin has you know in Augustine and following sin is itself a mystery and then you mystify the atonement with it now let me talk big categories who is God God is a uh, communion of three persons God is in uh to be grounded in communion and communication. Everybody by my definition here. What would be, if, if God is, is communion and communication, how would you distort this ultimate reality and ultimate access to this reality? Through discommunion and discommunication. Through a lie, in other words. That... Uh, a primordial lie constituting sin as the counter-kingdom, counter-subject to the identity that we are to have in Christ, which is a participation in the Trinity, that makes sense if we understand that this miscommunication, this misrecognition, is in fact uh, an undoing of ultimate reality. So if the word of God is the ultimate ground of reality and the means of mode and of creation and recreation, you know, God spoke and it happened, Genesis 1, but also in the beginning was the word, here is Christ, then sin as a lie distorts access to ultimate reality. Uh, the false mystery, the false transcendence of the lie uh, tends to displace the transcendence and mystery of God. And that's the thing we did with mysticism. What happens in mysticism, they're, they're making the mystical experience a transcendent experience on the order of an experience of God. So the truth of Christ is the truth which counters and displaces the lie of sin. Now, I'm not the first to say this, but I, I'm, uh, you know, Irenaeus says the he, he's working in the same with the same categories but i think that in a, a reading of uh, romans 7 we can e even begin to lay this out in more detail so let me say one more thing that revelation is going to be part of salvation if sin is a lie Revelation is subsequent to salvation in divine satisfaction because the salvation is worked out between God and Christ and revelation is something subsequent to that. We're told about that salvation. But what I would say is no, the revelation and the salvation cannot be extracted from one another. 
that the death of Christ, the life, death, resurrection of Christ, and the words of Christ, they're all part of the revelation of who Christ is. So that we cannot talk about the redemptive activity of Christ apart from the revelatory activity of Christ. Um, that revelation is part of the work of salvation as it exposes and dispels the lie of sin. Now here I'm, uh, there is a long tradition in Christianity from Irenaeus to Bart that would agree with what I've just said. But there's also a long tradition that tends, in other words, what happens, I think, with Anselm, everything gets divided up. Uh, you know, that the redempt the redemption revelation and and even the works of uh, redemption uh, now this imp- the implication of what I just said is that revelation is not addressed primarily to the rational soul or the rational subject. This is the Enlightenment, but this is also pre-Enlightenment. Revelation is addressed in part to the unconscious, right? What happens when we encounter Christ is more than we can account for in our conscious mind. Is that? I mean, maybe we don't even need to say that. But the way that we talk, the way that we do theology, it's almost like we can run this whole thing down in some rational way. What I'm saying, this thing's bigger than we are. Uh, Christianity is an all-encompassing, you know, world. And so part of what is happening is that our unconscious self, you know, think here of a lie. What is a lie? A lie is that you refuse a particular reality. That reality is brought to bear upon who we are in, in Christ. That which we would refuse can no longer be refused. And that's partly the role of revelation. That revelation has to do uh, with society and culture, but also with ourselves. That we suddenly we see ourselves in a new light. Uh, as the conscious work of sin is dependent on what it negates. The controlling factor about people is not their conscious selves. It's their unconscious selves. This is Freudian, but I think this is also New Testament, right? People don't know what drives them. They don't know why they do what they do. They are not conscious of the forces that they serve. Right? So repeat what you you just said. Uh The, the unconsciousness of sin makes a person dependent on what it negates. Okay. A lie works in three parts. The lie is, you know, if I say, well, we, if we take the Genesis lie, you'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. What's negated in that statement? Well, Genesis 3, 4, you're going to die. Or, you know, and, and of course, Satan says, you won't die. But the negation is quickly overtaken with a positive affirmation. That's the way a lie always functions. A lie negates something and puts something positive in its place. And so a lie is effective many times, not just because of what it, does say, but because of what it displaces or ref, you know refuses to say. This is why I think that when we talk about Anselm or other things, we can say, yeah, you know, maybe there's a... Well, the, the great tragedy is not the mistaken aspect of what they're doing. The great tragedy is that they're displacing New Testament Christianity. Mm-hmm which really addresses the problem of sin. This, this idea of a lie, can just, you just, it just comes up again and again. Uh, the, uh, so the, there are the two parts of a lie here. The positive thing, I, you know, uh, 
the you what you say, and then is negating something that goes unsaid. That makes a lot of sense. Now the third part is just the obvious thing: the uh, material form of the lie is in language. That may, you know, in other words, there is a, a medium for the lie. This becomes important when we come to the parts of a human subject because what I'll say is if we're constituted in a lie then these three parts are at work in the unconscious self in the conscious self and then in a kind of semi-conscious or the thing that constitutes consciousness and that's language or the law in Paul but I'll come back to that so the specific content of the lie or the deception what is not said, what is negated, is exposed by Christ. And we can say what this is, right? What is it that's exposed? Why did Christ die in the New Testament? To defeat sin. To, to defeat sin and death, and sin is an orientation to death. And in other words, why do we die? Because we oriented to death. What is sin? Sin is an embrace of a lie. I, you know, in a simplistic way, it's an embrace of the lie of Satan, but maybe that's not so simplistic because every time we sin, we destroy ourselves. Literally, right? That sin is a self-destructive process in which we imagine we attain life when we're killing ourselves. And you can, you know, work this out literally. That shooting up or you know whatever it is whatever the pursuit it doesn't matter how negative or positive the pursuit is that the human project is set upon gaining life in and through its own resources that project is death dealing to imagine there is life where there is no life is a lie and you know you just name the projects culture attaining wealth, you know, being somebody, becoming famous, whatever it is, you know. It doesn't matter what it is, but if you imagine, and imagine here may be the wrong word because it may be that this is working at an unconscious level, that what we are doing is establishing ourselves uh, through our own self-salvation systems. Christ exposes that. Now, the interesting thing in psychoanalysis, what I've said so far, is exactly what Slavoj Zizek says. He says that the human subject is grounded in a primordial lie. And he finds this lie in the way that it functions in Romans chapter 7. Zizek is building on Lacan, Lacan is building on Freud, that they, they've discovered... And, you know, Zizek say, well, we, nobody discovered it. We're just repeating Paul. We're just repeating the Bible. That it's been there. It's there in Freud, actually. But however it got there, the point is that psychoanalysis is a kind of instrument or tool that we can use to at least illustrate this, right? That, there, that That's the, the presumption. There's this primordial lie a tripartite lie that Freud is going to say sets up the death drive. Death drive, the drive that you would attain life through death. The drive that you would be compelled to throw off the death drive through the death drive. In other words, it's a self-binding. Uh, for Paul, the truth of Christ, faced, found in facing the reality of death in resurrection faith, think here Romans chapter 4, stands over and against the lie of sin. The resistance to death, that, you know, what do we call that? That primordial lie, that fundamental fantasy is what Zizek refers to it as. Fundamental fantasy is that you imagine you you you're, you pre-exist your own conception, or you imagine that you're in, innately immortal. Uh, 
So the the fundamental fantasy fantasy then is the the negation that is the the kind of the living lie that then sets up the drive of in a what we're calling uh, what Freud calls death drive, Paul calls the body of death, the power of negation. In other words, it's not just that in a lie, oh, you negate something. If what you're negating is God, then you've set up the power of death in place of the power of life, right? You call what is evil good, and you call what is good evil. That's what That's the way the Bible describes it. You call death life, and you call life death. That's the significance here. That this lie is not just, oh, a theoretical thing, but it's one that absorbs us, it defines us. And the power of the lie is in what it negates. It negates life. It neg- and who, you know, what's the source of life? God. It's a negation of who God is. So Christ exposes the lie of sin and death is at the foundation, the idea that really death is at the foundation of human subjectivity in the sense that this is the controlling power of who we are outside of Christ. Right? You're dealing in death if you imagine you're attaining life in and through your own self-salvation system. So... Christ exposes death through death acceptance and reverses the orientation of sin. Paul and James, or uh, John, referred to it as a slavery to death. Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews also. The New Testament, the Old Testament, calls it a covenant with death. What are you, what are you serving? Well, you're, serving you're, you're, you're a servant of the fear of death. And... Uh, Christ relegates death and the law of sin and death to a secondary category and displaces them with the truth. So when we talk about, you've heard me say this, that when we talk about Christ's truth, we mean a very specific thing. He's the truth over and against a lie. So the truth is salvific because the truth is a revelation about the reality of who you really are. It's not a propositional truth, philosophical truth, or anything on that order. Not that it excludes those necessarily, but it's a bigger truth than those because everything that you are outside of Christ in terms of human subjectivity is functioning according to the lie of sin. So the depth of the mystery of the truth of Christ displaces the unconscious structured as a lie. So we're you know, that's, that was my problem with uh, a, a kind of false mysticism. Because it's functioning just like uh, any good, good lie functions. That what is negated is given an infinite depth. Does nothing have an infinite depth? Does death have an infinite depth? Is it absolute? And I, No. I think, no, it's not. That Christ has defeated death. So, there's this false mystery, and it's displaced then by the true mystery. Not that we get rid of mystery, but we get rid of bad mystery for good mystery. Hmm. That is, we can't comprehend all of who God is. Even, we can't understand all of who Christ is. And this is what's described in Romans 8, that this, this also goes beyond our human conscious abilities to fully grasp it. But the Spirit is there groaning, you know, uh, where words would fail us. So on this account, the truth of salvation necessarily addresses the subject at both a conscious and unconscious level as the work of sin is exposed as an identity grounded in the dynamics of a specific deception, and that is the orientation to death. That's there, right, in in Genesis and in Romans, and I, I just think that's just repeated again and again. So the human subject or the psyche is structured in three registers. 
the symbolic, what would Paul call that? The law, right? Our orientation to the law. Our orient, our, you know, don't, don't get too complicated here. It's this language or it's the authority figures. Paul's second category is the I. Not this I, but this I. Uh, you know, ego is the Greek word. Ego. And then the third category is the body, the flesh. Uh, and by the flesh or the body, I don't think Paul means the literal. In other words, the body, Paul has no problem with, with the body per se. But what he's talking about when he talks about the flesh or the body, he's talking about this system in which one is split. In other words, what I'm saying, there's three things. There's three things divided against one another. The body acts independently of the I and of the law. There's three parts to this thing, and they're all pitted against one another. Therefore, I do what I do not want to do, and what I want to do, I do not do. So it's a deception that is alienating and antagonistic. It causes us to be antagonistic toward God, but also even alienated and self-antagonistic. We become masochistic. Or, if we turn that masochism outward, Cain kills Abel. So mystery, or, 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 or the murder, rather, the mystery of murder. You know, the history of murder is attached to the fall of man because the fall of man is entry into an, a violent alienation. So the unconscious as it relates to human consciousness is founded on this inner antagonism. Freud calls it Lacan Zizek, the death drive. Uh, you know, the word is nearly biblical already. I don't know that you need to change it up very much. Uh, you know, Jesus says he who would save himself will lose himself. So it's a kind of, Jesus might call it the drive to salvation is the death drop. So the key importance here is the discovery of the unconscious as it relates to human consciousness in these realms founded on an inner antagonism. That antagonism is death drive. It is, it is death. Maybe we can just say it that way. So when uh, God says, you know, the day that you eat of it, you'll die, I think what we're describing is someone, the living dead. Maybe not zombies, but <laughs> um, the idea is that people that are out of control and they've subjected themselves in Paul's own description to forces that they themselves uh, you know, are animated by. It's no longer I that do it, but it's sin that dwells within me. There is the deep disease of the human condition. Is that addressed, you know, in, uh, in a lot of the, these theories? Unfortunately, Anselm will talk about, you know, human interiority, but not, none of that's addressed. Not this sort of diseased lie. But it's not really addressed in, in uh, Christus Victor either. So we can locate... You know, you've, you've heard me do Romans 7. We locate these, this tripartite structure. What's the resolution to it? So, did you get the tripartite structure? There is the I, me, ego, whatever you want to call it. There is the I in relation to, we could call it, conscience which is a good biblical word. We could call it law, a good biblical word. We could call it authority. Could we call it God? I'm afraid some do. And this is the, my problem, my deep problem with divine satisfaction and penal substitution. I'm afraid what they're calling God is this 
structure within human subjectivity that is the authority. It's the father figure in Freud. It's the law. But it's not really the Mosaic law. It's actually the perversion of the Mosaic law that Paul will call the law of sin and death. God becomes equated with sin. I know that sounds terrible, but think what you're doing in a system in which God is made a violent father figure who would kill his son in order to meet his anger and just requirements. What does that sound like? That sounds like a punishing, perverse father. But God provided His own way, so it's really just loving. Yeah, if you're going to make love out of that, you got to—that's Freud's problem. You know, you got a, a father who you love and hate at the same time. Unfortunately, I think most people really hate this father. Yeah, understandably so. Uh, and say that they love him. That's we have to. We know it ain't right. You know, it's sort of like Huckleberry Finn. When, you know, he's running away with Jim. He says, I know. I run away with the, you know, I, I, I run away. I'll probably burn in hell forever and ever. But he said, I'm going to do it. In order, <laughs> that's sort of the way many people are in regard to God. The, the, the very figure of God is this perverse punishing figure that has been foisted upon us. And it's not God at all. It's this second person of a fallen trinity that uh, I think we need to stop believing in. And this is, you know, that this is an un- this is the unhealthy part of a divine satisfaction or penal substitution. Is that it gives us an image of God that is simply our own self-image. But understand our own self-image, uh, you know, the image of the authority figure in our own lives is not a good thing. In our fallenness, the Father, the authority, the what you know, God has been perverted in and through our misorientation. So that antagonism right there is actually the explanation for the third finger, uh, the death, you know. Uh, uh, the power of death, the power of, you know, Paul calls it the law of sin and death. Death becomes a force in our life, and that then is the third pole. That is the dynamic, that is the energy animating who we are outside of Christ. Death becomes the animate force. Uh... Thus Paul will, will say, you know, refer to, to himself, who will rescue me from this body of death? Jesus will call people the living dead. Uh, you know, even in Genesis, the idea is that they've transgressed the day that you eat of it, you'll die. They did. But they're still there. So the point is that, as in a lie, that what is negated becomes a force. It's, an, it's a, a negative force. Uh, it doesn't just, you know, it's not, a, it's not a benign thing. So Zizek is saying the same thing. He's saying, he calls this thing the death drive. But understand, Zizek's an atheistic nihilist. <laughs> I think he's, you know, he, he's really saying that the power of death and desire is the power of life. I mean, he, he, he's not, there's no argument there. He's just saying that you have to manipulate this power. And there is evil and there's good, but it's all arising from the same power. That's what Satan said, you know. And Satan's partly right. If given that there is no power of God to counter this. Uh, desire is both in a Zizekian and Pauline understanding the key to this. 
Lacan says, don't give way on your desire. Why? Because desire is all you got. Desire is the life force. But what Paul is saying is that desire is already deceived. Um, Paul, and Zizek's reading of Paul, is to say there are two kinds of people in Romans 7. One is the pervert. That's why, you know, he'll talk about this perverse relationship to the law. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Shall we, you know, do, you know, uh, is the law sin? You know, Paul uses that, he used variations of that about three or four times in Romans. That's someone who sees, you know, it's like there's the law and there's the obverse side of the law. How do you establish the law? In and through a perverse understanding. By transgressing it. Now this may sound strange to you, but understand there are perverts in the world. Right? What are they doing? They're serving this obscene father figure. This obscene God, if you will. They may not believe in God, but even if they believe in God, it's unfortunate. Because the God they believe in is an obscene God. In who would have them sin that good may abound. There, you know, it, it, it's a logic that I don't think anybody just sits down and articulates it, except apparently some of the false teachers in Rome did. But it's a it's a disease uh, that I think is sin. It is definitive of sin in which the good and the evil become two sides of the same coin. I don't know if, how perverse this sounds, but remember we're talking about people killing other people, doing violence, doing evil to establish the kingdom of God. That's going to quickly take place. That's one reading of this. The other reading, Paul says, that actually is the hysteric reading. Shall we sin that grace may abound? Paul answers the question, God forbid. He's saying we don't do that. And so Paul raises the question, of perversion and refuses it. And for Zizek, that's salvation. Uh, I would say, well, no, that's not salvation. That may be that the, you recognize the perversity of, of sin. But um, So the pervert doesn't question the status of the law. The pervert says the law is the thing. The law is absolute. Uh, the hysteric questions this law. I think that the law made absolute is the the position of the fallen person. But what law is made absolute? Not the Mosaic law, not, you know, a law given by God, but their own law, right? The knowledge of good and evil becomes a law unto itself. Paul will call the law of sin and death. It is a law. It's still a law. It's the, it's the symbolic. It's the superego. It's the it's this uh, figure that uh, we might even call God. So, the undoing uh, 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 that Zizek sees in Romans 7 is the beginning to question of this law. Paul never makes the law the thing. Anselm of Canterbury makes the law the thing. What do we have to ask in the doctrine of atonement have, as we have it? The law that is made the absolute, is that the law of God or is that the law of the pervert? And I would say, well, it's a, that's precisely what a pervert would do. Do evil that good may abound. Why did Christ die in an Anselmian understanding? So that, you know, it, 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 God requires it. God demands blood. This gets too dark eventually. That, you know, you don't want to dwell there very long because it, it's a travesty. Uh, I think what has happened in this understanding of Christianity. And, it, it, and it, as we've said, we said this a few weeks ago, people are better than their theology, right? People are better than what they believe. And Christianity is more powerful than what we might reduce it to. But that would be, that's sort of my introduction then to an alternative economy 
there are these two economies of sin and salvation. Unfortunately, I think we've con- that in a doctrine of divine satisfaction, penal substitution, even I would say the moral influence theory, I would, I would say that those theories have confused the economy of sin with the economy of salvation. So the law of sin and death is the version of law Moses, right? It's a perversion. It is partly a perversion of, of the law of Moses, but it could be a perversion of the prohibition given in the garden, or it could be a, a perversion of the law that's given to us in our heart. So, mistaking what Paul means by by the law in Romans, mistaking that between law of Moses for the perversion, or the other ones is what most of the uh, atomic theories would mess up or completely miss out on. Yeah, that they're going to make law the thing uh, that uh, that uh, the the picture is that um, Paul, let me state it here. Paul's resolution of the alienation of the subject of the law is to become a child of God through the power of the Spirit. Uh, the picture, you know, in Anselm or in other theories of atonement, is that the entire economy is worked out under the law. In fact, in this. Uh, Zizek would agree with this in part. Zizek and Paul converge in the notion that relationship to the law is of prime importance. I would agree. Relationship to the law is of prime importance, right? In understanding the orientation of the subject, what is the purpose of the law? Is the purpose of the law that we might have life? That was never the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to understand the human predicament. The purpose of the law was to be a tutor that brings us to Christ. So the law always had this, you know, kind of negative function. And the problem with the law is, of course, that it did not address the the heart of sin. The heart of sin is a lie, is a deception in regard to the source of life. So Paul does not see the law, although he'll talk about the law of Christ, but of course he he means something very different. Paul does not see the law as primary for the Christian, nor is it the mediator of the relationship in Christ. The law is suspended, right? It's not obliterated. It's not annihilated, that's the way some translations, the, the word that Paul uses there, you know, this is Hegel's word, afgehoben, that whatever that word is, it means that the negative effects of the law no longer hold. The law mediated death to us. But it mediated death in such a way that we could begin to recognize sin and death. And so that, that, that it was never that the economy of salvation or redemption would be under the law. Unfortunately, that's what we have in, I think, penal substitution, divine satisfaction. I would say even, uh, you know, I, I, any system that does not take account of the law misses this negative force of sin and death. And that's why we talked about sacrifice last week. Because usually Old Testament sacrifices. Mm-hmm are seen as that, you know, atonement or whatever, right? The sacrifice as we have it in world religions is the sacrifice to the perverse image of God, the idol, the, you know, it doesn't matter what the religion is. They all have sacrifices, and the sacrifice is not the sacrifice that the, the, you know the Old Testament is dealing with. 
they imagine that the sacrifice gains them access to God. That's not the truth, that's the lie. And we went through the prophets. Jeremiah is the strongest here. He says, in the voice of God, I didn't institute sacrifices. All I wanted was love and mercy and justice. But even the minor prophets or the other prophets, they'll talk about uh, the, the sacrifices are ineffectual and secondary to righteousness and uh, you know helping the poor and the oppressed. So, yeah, I think you're right that what happens in sin or what happens in world religions and a perverse Christianity is the law is made the thing, but we have to ask the question you asked, what law? Not actually the Mosaic law, not actually the prohibition in the garden, and not really even if there is a law written on the human heart, that even that, I think, has been perverted. And we see then the the, the service to a masochistic god a God who demands death and blood uh, to satisfy his own needs. That's just the uh, obscene superego. That's the obscene masochistic self. That's not the God we can say, God is love. That's almost what we would want God to be because it would be closer to our fallen selves. I think that there is a kind of satisfaction in this. I I mean, not just Anselm's divine satisfaction, but I think what we see God getting satisfaction out of, we do too, in a very perverse way. There will be blood. Somebody should make a film of it. This is Gerard. You know, this is where you get into Gerard because he's saying, oh, that's the foundation of human culture is the sacrificial systems. And the sacrificial systems are built on a lie. They're always a deception. And Christ exposes the nature of that sacrifice. So you can fit what Gerard is doing into what I just said uh, and show that, yeah, literal uh, formal religions institute a lying religion in which the god or the gods demand blood sacrifice to satisfy the needs of righteousness. Well, that righteousness is not the righteousness of the Bible, and that that, that is a perversion. So what's happening in the sacrifices in the Old Testament is an undoing of religious sacrifices. And this is Gerard, this is the his interpretation of the Passion of Christ. I can do Gerard next week if you all would, a little bit if you're interested in, in that. So, in my understanding, salvation, we can talk about it. You know, for Zizek, salvation is a reorientation of the law. Uh... And for him, the law is always the law of sin, is always the the death drive. There is no getting rid of the death drive for these people. By the way, if if you're doing psychoanalysis and you want a cure, the only cure they're going to have is is this negative cure. Mm -hmm. But Paul introduces an economy in salvation which is not mediated by the law, nor is it gauged in terms of the law, but it's a counter to sin and as the establishment of an alternative identity, an alternative economy in Christ. So for Paul, the law mediates and governs the economy of sin, but law is secondary in the salvation ushered in through Christ. The law could not deliver life, but God has done what the law could not do by sending his son, and Christ has ushered in the life promised by the law. Here is the economy of life in Christ. So, you know, this is, we could go through the categories in Romans 6 and 8. That uh, salvation destroys the law of sin and death. It introduces the economy of life. Um, 
and the you know the idea of life in the spirit with hope and love and uh, mutual indwelling uh, that is this alternative economy none of which exists in Romans 7 under the law of sin and death so what do we call this thing? resurrection life right? We're living resurrection life, in which there is, you know, what is the zero-sum game of the death drive? Only so much life to go around. What is life in Christ? We believe in resurrection life, that we have, that that death does not have the last word, that death is not an absolute, uh, and that there's an overcoming death.